Here we go. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> uh, oh, man. All right, stop time. Frank Williams. Avid Brewing. Milt Jackson. Let it rip. All right, folks, how you doing? All right, we're having a good time this morning. Uh, we're going to do something about a guy who played a uh, very unusual instrument in jazz. And I'm not talking about uh, the bagpipes. That, that would be quite unusual. Or the oboe, we've had a couple of those. I'm assuming we've had a couple of those. And uh, the French horn, we've had a couple of those. We're going to talk about the vibraphone. We call it vibes. Yeah, that's an unusual instrument. Wait till I tell you the story. It might be fairly common now, but it wasn't always so common. And the guy I'm going to talk about is the guy that made the vibes acceptable in jazz and got the instrument through the front door, finally. The story goes like this. Milt Jackson was born in 1923, same year as Dexter Gordon, but he was born in Detroit. Very humble beginnings. His early life was spent in church. And it is quite common that um, people with lesser economics um, cling to the church for hope. Uh, more than some others in general. Um, so you don't hear about the church influence in Dexter's music that you hear about in Milt's. He came up going to church all the time and singing, you know, not just in the choir, just as a pew sitter, as we call it, parishioner. Later on, somewhere around seven, uh, he started to play the guitar. Yeah. And by, I think, 11 years of age, he was playing the piano. And all of this was because he had an older brother who was also a good singer, and they would do these duets where they would both sing and Milt would play piano or guitar to accompany his singer. And this was gospel. This is gospel. This is what he is doing. Eventually, um, he uh, makes it into high school where he starts to play um, the drums. And he also picked up timpani and xylophone. As a piano player, the keyboard is pretty simple. Um, a simula was simple to make that transition. Um, this led him to uh, have a very wide um, range of expression. He was a vocalist, he's a guitar player, he's a piano player, he's also a percussionist. So he's expressing himself in many, many ways through many, many instruments. And the common thing in all of it is that relaxed, funky, I should be saying that related to the church, but yeah, that kind of funky, let me say that soulful feeling you get 
sacred black church music. That's what he was really, really good at. So somewhere along the line, he goes to the Michigan State Fair and he sees the great Lionel Hampton and his orchestra play. And boy, it hit him like lightning and thunder. He decided then and there that he was gonna learn the vibes and at 16, he went to the vibes. And we don't hear very much about guitar and piano anymore except, you know, anecdotally and uh, timpani and all that. And he, he went through a vibe, baby. But he was determined to have an individual voice. Lionel liked fast oscillation under his ball. Like early jazz musicians had a faster vibrato uh, on the wind instruments. Um, so Lionel had the fast oscillation on his vibraphone, but Milt, he wanted slow and easy and bluesy and funky and soulful and churchy. And that is the main difference between their styles. There were also people out there who were, you know, they were playing with three mallets or even four mallets, you know, that's like a big, oh my God, he's playing with four mallets. But Although Milk could do that, he could do three mallets, he could do four. Um, he eventually uh, went to Michigan State University and studied music, so I'm sure he got good percussion instruction and he could do all that. But he decided that for him to have his personal style, he needed a wide dynamic range from a whisper to a scream on those vibes, and that he had better control of dynamics with two mallets, then with three or four. So during his career, he broke that mold, and he was a guy that played with two mallets, and so you will find that there are usually uh, different schools. Uh, four mallets, three mallets, two mallets. Milk, two mallets. I want to have that control. He went into the service at some point, and in the service he met a few musicians that he'd see later in life, like Dizzy Gillespie. So, while he's studying hard at Michigan State and practicing, he's sometimes staying up all night to six in the morning, five, six, seven in the morning. Consequently, he developed these little bags under his eyes at a very young man. And one of the bass players he was playing with in Detroit nicknamed him Bags because of those little bags on his eye. And that stuck with him for the rest of his life. So most people don't say Milt Jackson, they just say Bags. Hey man, have you heard Bags' latest record? Everybody knows who that is. Milt Bags Jackson. Now, during the bebop era, Dizzy is front and center on that. And uh, he's heard this cat, Milt, playing. Milt ain't playing that swing style like Lionel Hampton. He's playing almost like Bird. He's playing the bebop thing. His language is bebop and blues and swing. 
And Dizzy liked that. So Dizzy sent him down to the spotlight club on 52nd. Bird was playing. And he had one of those little small vibes. You fold up, put it in a little bag, and carry it like a little suitcase. And uh, when he went to the spotlight, the guy stopped him at the door. Hey, man, where you going with that thing? I want to go sit in. Dizzy told me I could come here and sit in. What is that? Well, it's actually a vibe. Let me show you. Oh, no, no, no. You ain't bringing that thing up in my chair. It's a jazz club, man. We ain't bringing no crap like that up in here. You can't bring that up in here. So even with Dizzy's endorsement, the vibes were frowned upon, period. Not only do I not want to hear it, I don't even want to see it in my cup. And even when Bird started arguing about it, the club owner was like, no, we ain't letting this thing in. Eventually, he did get in the door. And when he set up his little vibes and did his little thing, he kicked it to off the hinges. He's now one of the most popular sidemen in the bebop era. He's playing with everybody. And Diz loved him. So when Diz put together his big band, he brought bags in. And like in the big band tradition with Ellington and Basie and all the cats, they always had a small group within the big band. Normally, a couple of the main soloists and a rhythm section. This was Dizzy's thing as well. Okay, I got a big band. All these bad cats, but I need to have a small band that can play in small clubs. I can make extra money when I can't be playing the big gigs and et cetera, et cetera. And when your small group is primarily a rhythm section, this gives the horn players a little rest because some of these charts during this era were really, really hard and really hard on the, on the face. So this gave the guys a few minutes to relax their face, put a little ice on their lips or whatever, so they can come back and play the second set. This small group uh, did have somewhere around 1945, uh, had Kenny Clark in it and John Lewis and Ray Brown and, uh, and, and Bags. And, um, this rhythm section soon turned into the Milt Jackson Quartet, which once Ray Brown left and Percy Heath came in, it became the Modern Jazz Quartet. Now, there was always a power structure going on. John Lewis believed in that third stream music, classical music, influence with jazz or jazz influence with classical influence and milk was straight out of the church baby i want some blues i want some medium tempo i want some soul i want to play behind the beat give me a flat three a flat five a flat nine a flat give me well, john wanted to do some other kind of things and this created a little friction Later on, when Kenny Clark finally went to Europe, they had to find another drummer, and that was Cozy Cole. And Cozy Cole wasn't a hot bop drummer like Kenny Clark. So with that change in personnel, John Lewis had a little support for his 
wider range of influences in the performance. And Bags had less. So there became Bags with the blues things and the soul things, and John Lewis with the more expanded uh, esoteric pieces infused with classical influences. There was a little tension there. And that tension allowed them to coexist peacefully, or almost peacefully, for a couple of decades. But it was always there. And to satisfy his need for some collard greens and cornbread and black-eyed peas and maybe some ribs, he'd always go out and sit in with cats who were playing hard bop in small group situations, whether it's Cannonball Adley or whoever, he's gonna go out and play with those cats, whether it's Bird and Diz and Miles or whoever, he's gonna go play with those cats. Matter of fact, he'd even go play with Jimmy Heath, taxpayer, who was Percy Heath's brother. So it was all in the family, but they had different outlooks and so they had different associations. That's how Milk kept his sanity for all those years. And somewhere around 1974, uh, he decided, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick of that, bye. And he walked away from his partners in the Martin Jazz Quintet and started to just do independent recordings under his own name, doing the music that he loved. He did get pulled back in to do occasional tours with MJQ uh, once a year or twice a year, but he did more of his own thing at this time than he did uh, with them. Um, another uh, 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 facet of the um, MJQ that may have offended him just a little bit, maybe a little bit, is that John Lewis was the musical director of uh, MJQ. And he wanted it to be as much like the classical influence as possible. So in most of their gigs, Modern Jazz Quartet played in tuxedos, bow ties and all. And whether it was clubs or festivals, they always had that sophisticated mannerism. Now there are some people who've called jazz black classical music. But John Lewis was infusing this music with European classical music, which is not quite the same thing as what people call black classical music. So they look at those distinctions uh, if you are into those little kinds of uh, definitions. At any rate, Milk kept doing what he did. And how much did he do? Well, let's see. He did 70 recordings as a leader. That's 70 albums. You talk about 10 tunes. That's 700 tunes. Let's do the math. As a leader. He did 45 recordings with MJQ. And he also did 25 recordings as a sideman for other artists of various 
genres and associations throughout his career. He always said that the reason he played like he did and the reasons that he had since the builders he had came directly from a church. Those early beginnings, sitting there with this impromptu soul music that was always stirring, stimulating, exciting. He had to have that in his music, and he did. Always, even when working with MJQ, he got his slice of that potato pie in there, baby. Yeah, he, he did his thing. Now, it also informs his life because he grew up in Detroit and he went to uh, fine schools in Detroit. Detroit was very segregated at that time, like his whole country was. And he talked about having a black history teacher in his school in 1938. We don't have those in schools today. Matter of fact, there's a segment of our population who argue against that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, not our history, their history, I understand. But he had that teacher in 1938, and he said that informed his attitude. So he was always very outspoken about all kinds of social and racial issues. He never left and went to Europe and stayed for 10, 20 years, but he fought while he was here. He spoke out because he had that in his heart since he was a student in a black history class in 1938. His church gave him a certain kind of morality as well. Because you hear about jazz musicians and their wild lives and the bars and nightclubs and all that, and you hear about Storyville and all the business ladies and all that. But Milk was married to one wife for 40 years. And that marriage ended at his death at the age of 76 in New York City. Milk Jackson is responsible for every vice player that followed him. There is no vice player that plays the instrument today that does not owe a ton of gratitude to Milt Jackson. And the honest ones will very clearly express that. Even if they do play with four mallets, they'll tell you, if it were not for Milt, we would still be locked outside the club. So we thank Milt Jackson for opening the door for all these wonderful players we have today and throughout the entire history of jazz and into the future. And we owe him for keeping the elements of swing and groove and soul and blues <laughs> and soul in the music front and center. And we owe him for his incredible dedication to this music through his output of 70 albums as a leader, 45 with MJQ, and 25 with other various artists. This is 
a truly unique pioneer in the annals of jazz. Bags was the man. And his tune, Bags Groove, continues to cause issues all the time. I remember having a conversation with my dearly departed friend, Billy Pulicherry, about that very same tune. It ended friendly, but we had opinions. And so just like Bags and John Lewis had opinions, musicians have opinions that sometimes diverge. Doesn't mean they're not friends, doesn't mean they don't love each other. It means they just have different sensibilities and sometimes those sensibilities are so strong that one has to pursue their own road in order to satisfy their hunger for whatever that passion is they possess in their heart, their mind, their ear, and in their soul. Soul, baby, and blues, Mr. Milt Jackson, better known as Bags, baby. Thank you.